So I wanted to thank uh, the UVBO for the invitation for Michelle. We had a lovely tour on the Pit Rivers Museum and all your coordination and my arrival and for everyone for being here today. Um, the talk that I'm going to give is based on field work carried out in the emergence of the diagnostic category of obesity in Guatemala. So my training, my uh, doctoral degree was in anthropology, cultural anthropology um, with a kind of medical FPS focus. Um, I did my field work in a large public hospital and while living in people's homes. I first traveled to Guatemala in 1999 and I've gone back almost every year since. So some of this is material I've been working through for quite a long time, but this presentation is a first draft, um, a new framing of, of some of the things that I've been thinking about. So I love feedback and critical questions. Um, I wanted to begin with an exercise that I've used in teaching, and that is the very basic question of what is healthy eating, which is a question that I've asked my students. Um, and I've asked this uh, question in medical anthropology classes in Seattle, in Amsterdam, at NYU, um, actually throughout the Netherlands. Reflecting the field of anthropology's commitment to the polyvocality of perspective and medical anthropology's commitment to recognizing diversity in patient experience, students' student responses typically address the importance of accounting for the specificities of an individual's cultural context. So responses align with one or multiple of the following examples. So healthy eating differs for different people in different places. The social context is important. This is another one. There's not just one kind of healthy eating. Some people like rice. Some people like corn. Some people respond well to strict dietary guidelines. Others benefit by paying attention to how their bodies feel. Some will need to eat more meats and proteins. Some will need to eat more vegetables. A third example, when assessing healthy eating, variation in medical history and cultural dietary preference should be attended to. So student, student responses typically account for social and historical variation, but the target for healthy eating that they speak and write of, with few exceptions, pertains to what is healthy for a particular person and his or her particular body. This framing of health as something experienced by and within the individual resonates with my fieldwork on examining biomedical models of nutritional health in an obesity outpatient clinic in the highlands of Guatemala. I spent roughly a year between um, 2008 and 2009, my fieldwork was about two years, but I spent a year observing patient consultations in Guatemala's third largest hospital, located in the Western Highlands region of Quetzaltenango, a city called, it was in a city called Shela. So that's the hospital, and this is the city. A few months before I arrived, the hospital had opened an outpatient obesity clinic to address the sharp increase in recorded deaths from heart attacks, stroke, diabetes, and other metabolic illnesses. I can't do justice to the longer story of this today, but changes in the food supply throughout the 90s were accompanied by changes in illness profiles. At the, uh, this really started to be noticed at the turn of the millennium. So here's just some of the kinds of changes in food supplies. And these then lead to an increase in heart attacks. This is a poster from the obesity clinic. I'm not trying to advertise Merck. They were advertising it. Um, uh, of in introducing people about uh, coronary heart disease. Um, so the clinic was set up to teach people who had long associated fatness with beauty and prestige that weight gain was dangerous. Patients were weighed 
and their BMI was calculated, and then they received a diet um, that had all of the food that they could eat. Uh, it was The diets were organized by calories, so you see here 1,250 calories, 1,500 calories, and then they would get a list and it would tell people, you know, for breakfast, this is a good breakfast. It would be calculated for this number of calories over the course of the day, and they, the nutrients, the foods were calculated so that they would have you know, nutrient diversity as well. The obesity clinic was designed to treat a spe specific singular patient. And so I put this picture in because as a caveat, when I'm talking about the clinic today, much of what I'm addressing is what the clinic was imagined to be in its protocol in practice. So it was set up to treat a, treat a patient in practice. What happened in the clinic was it had its own everyday life. That's a little bit less what I'm going to talk about today. I'm more thinking about how it functioned in the minds of those who had, who had uh, set up the space or were designing the protocol. Um, so here you see two women being treated in a space that it was imagined that just one person would be there. Um, so it was, it was designed to treat a, a specific singular patient. The success or failure of treatment um, would have been, a, it was assessed on the basis of a, a, a specific person's response. So do, trigly, do triglyceride levels in the patient's blood decrease over time? Does the patient lose weight? Does she have more energy? There's also a lot of, in, in this field where there was a lot of influence from the pub, uh, public health. So similarly, the public health poster of the healthy food plate in Guatemala, this is the healthy food bowl. Um, and that's interesting because the bowl, of course, is a communal icon, but the instructions that you see and the recommendations that are there, those are made for an individual person. This, was intent, this, this public health food bowl was intended to make the public health citizen um, help them make better, smarter, healthier choices. It approaches health as something to be gained or lost by an individual. And so even though public health typically uh, concerns itself with populations, the population is still figured quantitatively as an aggregation of individuals, such that changes in population health are calculated through demographic data drawn from individuals. And I don't, this is, I'm talking about public health as it operated in my field or in Guatemala, so that's not a universal claim about public health everywhere. Um, Medical anthropology, it's not a coherent field. Its scholars work at the intersections of other fields, to use Marcia Inhorn's expression. Yet I'll suggest today that an overwhelming disciplinary association of health and illness with settings that are explicitly medical in character carries with it the risk that bi the biomedical goals and approaches um, eclipse other forms of health, as well as the multitude of places in which these forms materialize and matter. My concern stems from my experience of carrying out fieldwork in the hospital's obesity clinic while also living and working with women in places where institutionalized medicine was at times inaccessible, absent, or simply irrelevant. In these settings, the health of the individual and the health of the body often had little to do with how women strived for and cultivated health in their everyday lives. Because much medical anthropology often unfolds through a study of biomedically classified diseases with fieldwork conducted in clinical settings and with individual patients, much may be missed about the techniques and priorities of care in places where health is not a fixed, diagnosable property located within the individual body, but is both fluid and distributed. The talk departs from clinical medical anthropology by drawing attention to the kitchen as a site of care. Whereas clinical aims are often measurable and immediate, lower blood sugar, lower cholesterol, weight loss, the care administered by the women with whom I spent time in kitchens attended to a matrix of social and environmental concerns. In these kitchens, medical expertise was not central to the alleviation of suffering, prevention of illness, or fostering of health. 
women's culinary expertise, though it pertained to health and illness, often did not address an isolated individual, but the good of families, the communities, and even the landscapes for whom they cooked. That's a little bit provocative because we don't usually use whom for landscape, but I'm going to do that to sort of try to get at what, what the women were cooking for. The women that I, in my field work, they were struggling to get by, and many described that they were making do for the day. Yet they also, at the same time, remained long, mindful of longer-term obligations spread across disparate temporalities and spatialities. These included practices of conviviality and reciprocity within households and social networks, transferring cultural knowledge to younger generations, and tending to the land upon which their food would grow. Failure, failure to uphold any of these obligations would be a failure of what I want to call health care. The anthropologist Lynn Morgan issued a caution to the field of medical anthropology back in 1990 that the terms of health that predominate clinical medicine risk having too much influence on anthropology's own lens of inquiry, leading to what she aptly dubs the potential to medicalize medical anthropology. Sharing this concern, I want to examine today what we might learn about health by focusing on care within kitchens rather than clinics in illustrating how politics, economics, pleasures, and traditions come together so that feeding can happen, I hope to illuminate ways in which an anthropology of health might depart from an anthropology of medicine. So a little bit, I'm going to talk a little bit about methods here. Um, the methodological problem of how and where to identify health in my fieldwork doesn't have a straightforward solution. One strategy could be to follow the term as it was used by my informants, but what term would I follow? The woman I worked with never spoke of health, the word I use in my presentation today, but this is most obviously because we converse not in English but in Spanish. So I could take the Spanish term, salud or sano, typically translated as health, but this would be limiting, as in my, in my field sites, both of these terms explicitly connote biomedical institutions and their histories. So here's a centro de salud. It's in one of the rural communities where I worked. Latin American cities typically have a centro de salud where individual patients are treated by biomedically trained doctors and a departamento de salud, this is the ministerio de salud, so it's even grander, where patient records are aggregated together as part of statistical bureaucracy. Salud, according to several women with whom I spoke, women who had cared for and raised numerous children, was something they knew nothing at all about. Sano, which was encouraged in Latin American hygiene campaigns over the 20th century, similarly conjured up images of doctors, nurses, health educators, waiting rooms, and the clinical consultation, pharmaceuticals, and biomedical expertise. So listening for salud or sana would have led me to these kinds of spaces. The dilemma of what terms to follow in writing about health is further complicated because for many of my informants, Spanish was spoken as a second language. The region where I worked was trilingual, with the Mayan languages quiche and mom spoken in addition to Spanish. I could track the indigenous terms for health when these are used, but this was, not, uh, this was also not straightforward. In many Mesoamerican languages, the word for health is the same as the word for strength, uh, for that which is strong, that which is precious, that which is beautiful, or simply good. So such fluidity in a word's meaning is potentially revealing of the expansive qualities of health that I wish to draw out in this presentation. But even so, that a single word has many different meanings doesn't necessarily imply, for example, that being beautiful is the same as being healthy. Words are, after all, used in very rich contexts. So locating what I want to call health through words spoken in my fieldwork would be dissatisfying, not only because anthropologists have long challenged the idea that words contain their meanings, such that they can be cleanly translated across languages, cultures, and histories. It would also be dissatisfying because much of my research in kitchens took place 
through unspoken practices. It's not incidental that in many of the sites where I worked, oratory and elocution historically have been the privileged domain of men. When I asked a household maid if she followed recipes, the woman laughed at my question. Though she cooked expertly, she could not, or perhaps she simply would not, recite the steps she took or even the ingredients she used. Communicated through her laughter and the quiet discomfort that followed was the very clear message that words were not how the work in her, of her kitchen proceeded. When I asked her to say more, the maid took my hands. It's here, she said resolutely, pressing my fingertips against her palm and ending my questions. It's not that I don't like words. I listen for them. I write with them. I'm speaking with them today. But for the purpose of unpacking variation in health, they are not enough. In my analysis that follows, when I link culinary care to health, this is not necessarily because women spoke the term, but because of insight into how women understood health that I gained through sustained ethnographic engagement in their homes, kitchens, and daily lives. While doing field work in the obesity clinic, I lived, I cooked, I ate with Guatemalan families in which at least one member of the family had received a diagnosis of obesity. I shopped with the mothers of the family, I cooked with them, I watched as they very often ignored the diets that had been prescribed, or in some cases as they refused to step on the scale at their clinical consultations. As I moved between my various sites, I noticed major rifts between the health concerns that emerged in medical clinics or formalized public spaces of health education and those that women emphasized in their kitchens. It is this divergence that I set out to explore today. I draw the primary ethnographic materials from, for this, art, for this uh, paper from fieldwork located um, in or around the spaces surrounding kitchens. And the kitchen itself um, often was... Uh, stove that was attached to the place where we ate, so it wasn't necessarily set off as a, as a separate space. This is changing somewhat in Guatemala as architectural planning changes. You see more and more kitchens that are their own rooms, but very often, historically, the kitchen actually wasn't even much of a kitchen. It was the stove in the center of a courtyard where many different families would gather. Um, but I, I'm using the word kitchen more just to represent this kind of space in which the women that I work with had expertise and cooked, um, not as if it's a closed-off bounded space. So I'm going to present three vignettes. All of them are organized around kitchens. Um, the, that the work is ha happening in the city of Shela, a Latin American city, is not incidental. After all, there is a vibrant Latin American tradition of connecting health to soils, spirits, and seeds, rather than individual level morbidity and mortality. Yet I want to leave open the possibility that the forms of health I highlight here are not related to a particular ethnos, so Latin American, Guatemalan, Mayan, Quiche, um, but that they may relate more generally to practices of culinary care. So here's just a picture. To, this is one of the kitchens where I was. So I employed the term culinary care to account for the various meanings of and intentions for health encompassed by beliefs, practices, and rituals except intersecting in the kitchens where I worked. Many of the women in my research underscored the importance of cuidarse en la comida, this expression can be translated as caring through food, but also to take care in food or to practice care in food. So if I asked women their plans for the day, or I found them in the kitchen and asked what they were doing, or even in more formal interviews, if I asked them about their work or their role in the family, this was a common response, cuidarse en la comida, to practice care in food. What is interesting to me about this expression is that it doesn't identify a specific subject. The care expressed here is directed at neither a particular individual nor at a population of individuals. As I'll illustrate through fieldwork cases, by caring in, through, and for the food, women attended simultaneously to the immediate event of the meal, 
but also to the histories from which the meal came and the futures it would help to produce. The anthropologist T.S. Harvey notes that in many parts of the world, a patient possessing a singular body is not, in fact, the clinical norm. He describes settings in which entire families would show up to the clinic for treatment when one of their members fell ill. He draws from this observation to explore the shape of medicine in places where, to quote him, where there is no patient. In similarly noting that women are not cooking for and not caring for specific subjects, I want to unpack today the question, what is health, specifically the health related to obesity care, when there is no individual? So I'll take you through the three cases. They don't seem to relate directly to obesity, but rather to the way in which women undertook cuidarse and la comida, practicing care through food. It's after I finish the cases that I'll return to my work at the hospital to draw out um, some possible lessons for obesity for, for our group today. Case one. Um, Gloria's youngest grandson will turn two at the end of the month, and her three children, all of whom have moved to Guatemala City for work, will return to her home with their children for the celebration. Weeks before they arrive, Gloria begins to prepare the menu for the day. On her trips to the market, she tells me stories about corn. Over a period of several days, she buys handfuls of kernels from various market vendors, which she, she then cooks and tastes before settling on the one that she wants for the main dish of the day. Gloria, a single woman who pays her bills by renting spare rooms in her home to university students, is not wealthy by any means. But cost is not her priority here. She talks to vendors not about how much their corn costs, but about where it has come from. Walmart-owned grocery stores where we sometimes pick up staples are lined with maseca, a mass-produced corn flour. The women I've lived with have told me how dry and flavorless it is. Some have begun to use it, but they're not particularly happy about this. They show me how the tortillas or tamales they prepare with it break apart in their hands. One day, as we pass an aisle in the store where bags of maseca are stacked high, Gloria tells me that it's filled with chemicals and that its use has been connected to cancer. It contains formaldehyde, she says, whispering the words, a chemical of the dead. In the week before her family arrives, I can hear her at work in her kitchen well into the night, pots moving from burner to sink and back to burner, the smells of intentionally burned pepper or roasted sesame seeds lasting through to the morning. She boiled the corn herself. It was more kilos than she could carry, so she had to make two trips. And then she took it to be milled and sat for hours on end, patting the masa into banana leaves for the tamales she is making. She tells me as we do this together one night just before her family arrives that she's worried about her children and grandchildren. One son and the wife of another have diabetes, and she's concerned for their health. When her children arrive, they bring with them a blood sugar tea that boils on the stove over the next three days that they're there. Gloria goes across town to get a special bottled water for the tea. We, normal, we normally drink boiled tap water, but she doesn't trust this for the, the diabetes tea. She says it will make the flavor off. The time for the meal comes, and though Gloria has spent weeks preparing it, it's over in a matter of hours. On the evening after her children have returned to their homes, we're back in the kitchen, and she tells me how glad she is that she put the time that she did into it. This was her chance to feed her children something from their home. She hopes it will keep them strong during their time away. So I'll just quickly flag a couple key themes that we can take from this. You can't make a good meal without knowing about how the meal was grown. A clinician might look at a corn and see nutrients. Gloria looks at corn and she sees histories. Where she cannot see histories, as in the corn that's been packaged in plastic, she sees death. Cooking is not irrelevant to health. Taste, texture, and flavor each carry information about provenance, and the provenance of food will affect both its taste and the effects that this taste can bring about. 
food can connect one to their home, and this can give them strength. So there's just some of the themes that I pulled out of that. Um, so case two. Adela had worked as Esther's maid since she was in her teens. When she was 15, she left a home she described as abusive in a Quiche village so small it doesn't appear on any map. Eventually finding her way to Esther's employment. Uh, she eventually found her way to Esther's employment. Because I have never seen Esther in her kitchen, I'm surprised to learn that she, it was she who taught Adela how to cook. Adela laughs at my naivete. When I was young, living with my mother, we used to grind spices to make a strong chile. To do this, we'd add some onions and salt, and we'd eat this on tortillas. Every day, three meals a day, this was all, you ate. This was all we ate. As you can understand, I learned no cooking from my mother since there was nothing to cook. I learned it all here. Today, the kitchen where we speak is full of food. She points to ripe, delicious vegetables and chicken thighs in the sink. Market women typically sell produce grown in their village, and so the origin of produce can be difficult, can be identified in the clothing they wear. So you can look at this and say, okay, this, this food was grown in Almalonga, for example. Adela tells me that none of the food she buys has come from Almalonga. When she, making purchases, she looks instead for women wearing headscarves, headscarves from Llanos de Pinal. And this is just, I was just show you some, a couple market pictures here so you can get a sense of the outdoor markets. Both towns are just outside the city, but Almalonga has an extensive export production and the soils of Llanos de Pinal, she tells me, are not full of toxic chemicals of pesticides used for the quick exaggerated growth of vegetables that come from imported seeds. She bought the chicken from a woman who comes to the city from the countryside only once a week. It's much more expensive, but she doesn't trust most chicken sold in the market. You can tell from the taste of market chicken that, that it's been imported, she says. She won't serve tasteless food to her family, not after what she's endured. She doesn't want to make them sick. She's given a weekly budget to work with. It's not enough to have meat at every meal, and she has to be clever about how she spends the money to make it last. But still, there's much she can do with it. Unexpected guests commonly drop in, family, business partners, friends. This is not a problem. She will ensure there's enough for all, no matter how many arrive. And it helps that the thick, warm tortillas she serves are both inexpensive, readily available, and loved. They can extend any meal. And in the city where I worked, there were maybe on each city block, there would be a woman selling these three times a day. You could go and buy tortillas, and if, if you ran out, you could just go next door and get some more, because that's how they, they cooked them. So she doesn't plan her meal around the guests, but around the food. She considers what goes well together, delicate spices to please tongues, hearty substances to fill bellies. Okay, so all the lessons. Eating well reflects stability and also helps to secure and maintain it. Health is marked by abundance, precarity by scarcity. Again, we see that knowing something about how food is grown is important to eating well. There's a distrust of factory food, as well as the chemicals used to grow vegetables for export. It's important to care for a household's budget, but it's also important to care for communities. Whereas pleasure may be a danger to health in biomedical formulations of food and nutrition, here pleasure is both a means to and an expression of health. She does not plan the meal around specific individuals or a specific number of individuals. She cooks for the taste of food, the pleasure of the food, and the presentation of the meal. Okay, case three. This is the last one. Celebrations for the end of Rosario, the patron saint of the city, are underway. For four weeks, culminating on October 7th, a float holding the Virgin will parade around the neighborhood during the evening to a parishioner's house. The, this family will have invited extended family and friends, and many that they don't know well at all, to join them for dinner. 
October 7th is more important this year than usual for the family I'm living with. The family that's hosting the Virgen is related to the family. They all, this family, the one that's hosting the Virgen, also runs a carnaceria, a butchery, so there are high expectations for the food. When the procession arrives at their home from the church, the mother and daughter I'm living with head straight to the kitchen. I follow and see several women tending a meal. One stirs a large pot simmering on a brick oven. Another is organizing cutlery. Another lifts the lid of the kettle of spicy tea, assessing if it's hot enough with her eyes. A fourth woman notices me and shoes me out. The kitchen is not a space for observation. I take a seat among the circle, and this isn't from this day, but I just will show you the food that... I take a seat among the circle of women, of others living in... in, I take a seat among the circle of others in the living room. The mother of the household soon arrives with the pepillon, a stew made with pork, which she serves on plastic plates to the crowd that is gathered. Another woman follows behind her, carrying plates of tamales, chili sauce, and more tea. As is customary in this community, we say the Lord's Prayer with its plea for nourishment in unison before we begin. Then for several hours, we talk and eat. We are full, but the women come with the food again, and we take more. Back at home that night, I'm about to fall asleep when I hear a low, soft chanting coming from the kitchen. I crack the door to my room and peer into the dark. The chanting stops for a moment, but then begins again. The next morning, after breakfast, I ask the grandmother of the house about this. She laughs, surprised I had heard her, and explains she was blessing the space, begging the Virgin to keep the family safe for another year. The Quiche word for soul is identical to the Spanish word, alma, they both use it, but she combines this with the Quiche word for illness when she was expl- explaining that she was staving off ek alma, illness of the soul. So, some lessons here. The clinic is a space for observation where, a do- where there is a doctor and a subject that is to be treated. The clinic is instead a space for involvement. The, the kitchen is instead a space for involvement. There is no place for subjects here. There is a meal to be made. And whereas biomedical care might target the individual's physicality, culinary care rather tends to the good of something more diffuse. Bodies, souls, individual plates, communities, the fullness of the moment and hunger of past and future, they all become stewed together. Okay, so I'm going to, in my analysis, I want to draw from these stories to suggest that health, as it materializes through acts of culinary care, may have a very different aim than the improvement of individual well-being. In the clinic's version of healthy eating, the object of health is typically singular. There is a patient, isolated by a medical chart, who will be treated through personalized dietary recommendations. Meanwhile, in the kitchen, the individual does not often figure as relevant. The women in my field were cared for their health and their cooking, but not for the health of the individual. Concerns for sickness and suffering are prevalent in the narratives I've given. Kitchens were sites in which women could address the corn, address corn that had been processed with deadly formaldehyde, growing up in conditions of poverty, vegetables grown on toxic land, and spiritual malaise. Yet in these cases, the suffering the women attended to through the preparation of food was not suffering embedded in, experienced by, or embodied in the body. Instead, suffering connected to the organizational structure of grocery stores, inequalities of international trade, poverty and violence, community disintegration, and so on. In the acts of culinary care, I observe women cooked for and attended to bodies of collectives, although we may want to start to question whether the idea of body is itself a useful term at all here. When patients and their families discussed obesity during interviews and informal conversations, 
Their concerns centered upon expanding export markets that relied on heavy pesticides, changes in the food supply, shifting workday schedules and gendered obligations surrounding eating, the spread of urban violence, and inequities in the distribution and ownership of land. These were not problems that could be located in any one body, be it individual, social, or political. They were rather problems that were spread across diverse and shifting geographical and temporal landscapes. Clearly, the women in my family cooked for fam. Sorry, clearly the women in my field work cooked for families, a term that was not genetic but was organized around who lived together. But they also cooked for the meal itself. By attending to this meal, they attended to those who had gathered to eat it, and they also attended to the health of the produce, of tradition, of ancestors, and their land. As such, health was something distributed across relations rather than located within bodies. It entailed the satisfaction that comes from a flavorful meal, the quality of soils in which produce was grown, or the strength of ties within households and between neighbors. Trust among diverse social actors and environments then also became part of the lens of health. So there are two primary interventions that I aim to make through the observations about the shape of culinary care as it transpired in kitchens. The first pertains to potential arenas of what I refer to as prescriptive dissonance. I use this term to highlight the ways in which care directed at individuals may sidestep the health concerns of patients. I also use the term to illustrate that when care for individual health targets the Sorry, when, ca- when care for health targets the individual, this may, in fact, have a detrimental impact on individual health as it's understood clinically. The second term, disciplinary dissonance, pertains to ways in which anthropological theory may be limited in its association of health with experiences and expressions of an embodied, a socially inflected but nonetheless bodily subject. So first, prescriptive dissonance. The frictions that resulted from encounters between the clinic's focus on the individual and the kitchen's communal aims often had destabilizing effects for the many who straddled both kitchens and clinics. Dietary health targeting an individual resulted in techniques focused on personal weight loss guidelines, calorie counts, individual portion sizes, recommended daily allowances, and so on. In my fieldwork, I saw that these individualizing techniques would often be useless at best and destructive at worst in the lives of the women who are engaged in the labor of balancing costs and flavors and facilitating connections across spiritual, kin, and material relations. Several women I worked with explicitly rejected personalized dietary instruction. They ignored dietary treatments or exercise regimens. They refused to buy individualized packaged food. In the case of a woman who cooked on a single burner stove and owned a single pan to cook with, she laughed at the directive to prepare food for herself. She had a family to feed with these limited resources. More worrisome were cases in which the clinic's focus on the individual was not neutrally ignored, but added to the patient's burden of illness. Whereas the women I worked with had been raised eating soups and stews, they were commonly advised to now eat foods served for one, in which nutrients and calories could be easily calculated. A bowl of cereal, a sandwich, a single serving portion of yogurt, a granola bar, It was the case that many of these recommended foods were store-bought and sealed in individually wrapped packages. These foods were more expensive than the kind of foods bought when preparing meals for many, adding to the difficulty women faced when feeding their families. These foods also contained additives intended to give them a long shelf life, which the women generally distrusted. Clinicians were busy encouraging patients to care for the body of the individual in culinary spaces and through culinary practices that did not historically have individual aims in mind. This was a confusing mandate for many. Patient after patient came into the clinic having starved themselves. 
They had learned that weight loss was desirable and that eating less led to weight loss. A regular consequence of this lesson was that they skipped meals. Many patients, not incidentally many patients who had lived through famine, spoke of an insatiable hunger that had come to possess them. Some said it was all they could think about. There were also many patients who came requesting weight loss drugs. Concern for heart disease and heart attacks had brought them to the clinic. They learned they needed to lose weight, and they heard a drug might help them do this. To give one haunting example of how this played out in my fieldwork, many patients asked about subutramina, and a poster made by its makers was used uh, by the nutritionists to teach them about BMI. So here's the poster. What's not advertised here in this poster is that this very drug had been banned in the U.S., Mexico, Western Europe, India, China, etc., because of its link to heart attacks. So here you have patients seeking a drug linked to heart attacks to help them care for their hearts. So I want to quickly mention these two, two kind of other quick cases where focus on health, the health of the individual body had potentially dangerous consequences. Um, the first example, much public health nutrition focused on the need to fortify mothers' diets so as to aid in field development. So here you actually get the individual body being a bit confused because it's both the mother and the child that's targeted, but it is the uh, directive that was given is about what you eat, mother. Um, so nutritional supplementation is the gold standard in prenatal and postnatal care and nutrition. Many of Guatemala's public health scientists, so the, you can see it comes from the World Food Program, this is the donation, here's the educator who's teaching the woman, you know, you have to have, I can't, I don't know, I can't remember exactly what she's saying, but something along the lines of, you know, you must take this at least five times a day, or you can, you can imagine the conversation that's happening there. Um, Many of Guatemala's public health scientists who are concerned about obesity have advocated hard for this since research on the developmental origin of health and disease, much of which comes out of Guatemala, has linked poor prenatal nutrition to later life stunting and obesity. Even though many of the women receiving this supplement, the supplement are stunted and underweight, there is the public health concern that their babies will be stunted and overweight when the babies grow up. In urban areas in Guatemala, this is a notable trend. Obese women give birth to low-weight babies. Only recently have public health scientists begin to voice concern that in their interest in the weight and measure of the body, uh, they may be themselves causing, um, well, their interest in the weight and measure of the body may be causing a public health myopia. As some have begun to note, unborn infants in Guatemala should not become too big too fast since many Guatemalan women birth at home, and many of the women who birth at home are themselves stunted, putting them at greater risk for obstetrical complications. One scientist I spoke with recently referred to the possible impacts of good prenatal nutrition as genocide at an unimaginable scale. Okay, so that's one example of where a focus on the body may spiral out to have other intended consequences. Here's the next one. The export market for vegetables in Guatemala has exploded in the last few decades. This began in the 1950s. It was rumored that Americans home from the war wanted healthy vegetables. The truth of this is lost in history, but what is known is that the increased production of vegetables is largely for export to international consumers who, in the shadow of obesity prevention programs, want to eat well. The seeds for these vegetables come from elsewhere and their growth is enabled by the use of heavy pesticides that have been linked in some research to growing rates of obesity years after exposure. So there you have a situation in which the very message to the individual consumer, eat more vegetables, may itself be implicated in patterns of the emergence of global obesity. Through these different examples, I want to suggest that messages about obesity prevention that were focused on the individual's body overlooked the forms of health that women were busy cultivating in their care for food. 
This focus on the individual body put constraints on purchasing power of households. It interfered with the potential for meals to facilitate and reinforce ties. It led patients to starve themselves or seek out dangerous <coughs> drugs. Treatment of an individual's obesity through attention toward the body often bubbled up as illness for others in different places and different times. Okay, so that was my attempt to address prescriptive dissonance. The last thing, the last point of my talk will be about disciplinary dissonance. My concern is that too often medical anthropologists take the aims of the clinic to constitute the terms of health, and in doing so, miss the diversity of ways in which health is valued outside clinical spaces. There's no question that historical and sociocultural contexts are central to the field of medical anthropology, but by focusing on how history and context become embodied, health often remains an attribute experienced by and located within this body. There is, of course, an extensive literature on healing which addresses how people and practitioners care for that which can't be isolated within the individual body. Yet the field of medical anthropology often brackets health from healing, invoking the conjunction and, health and healing, as if there is a clear boundary to be drawn. It's also the case that healing is very often secondary to health, appearing as its marginalized other. Meanwhile, I'm suggesting that kitchens, though they are neither biomedical nor individualized places, are sites in which women seek to produce and respond to very real forms of health, even if this health doesn't follow the terms of biomedicine. A dilemma in making this claim is that biomedical health is very often measurable, and through its measures, it becomes definable. This is what health is. It's BMI of 20 to 25, Meanwhile, the care of, of the, the, the care in kitchens that I'm also calling health is far less stable. It's not located in a place or time, but diffused across relations, across times, across places. Whereas much of biomedicine proceeds with units, the unit of concern in the kitchen was not much of a unit at all. Family, community, land, spirits, and all at once, it was not located in, in a specific uh, unit. In outlining forms of health enacted in kitchens, I'm aiming to make space for non-biomedical framings of health within anthropology and ethnographic discussion. I'm certainly not aiming to expand the language of biomedicine into a terrain where it doesn't belong, like the kitchen, but rather to illustrate that health is not always biomedical. The anthropologist Joe Dumont has astutely demonstrated that U.S. pharmaceutical companies have contributed to the recent inflation of health. He shows that the U.S. pharmaceutical industry has manufactured health as a quality of life that is under, constantly under threat and in need of pharmaceutical maintenance and protection. I'm aware that my own call for a need to expand the concept of health may sound suspiciously similar to the ambitions of the pharmaceutical industry. We are, after all, advocating for an extension of health from clinics into kitchens. Yet, I'm not doing this as a means to medicalize kitchens. In drawing attention to the care that happens in kitchens, I'm hoping to show that what counts as health in people's everyday lives very often does not fall within the traditional biomedical format in which the good of the singular patient is a desirable or relevant outcome of care. The difference here is crucial. The health the pharmaceutical industry is pushing to expand is necessarily individualized. It's quantitative, located in bodies, and improved by prescriptions, personalized prescriptions. The health Joe Dumet describes is one in which health exists as a thing, a unit-based property that can be accumulated like currency to form surplus health, a seemingly protective barrier against the always lurking threat of illness. Meanwhile, the health that emerges out of culinary health is a health of hospitality, a term theorized by Matai Kandea and Giovanni de Cole to emphasize the realms in which calculation is enmeshed with spontaneous improvisation and the personhood of the host and the guest always intertwined. If the treatment of health as a property creates conditions for surplus health in Joe Dumit's use of the term, the health that's practiced in the kitchen rather entails productive sur surplus in Pitt River's sense of a practice of exchange that always incites the overflow of its own boundaries. 
The health in the kitchens where I worked was, in other words, not a, a thing, but a quality of living. And though it was not a thing, which perhaps makes it more difficult to articulate and identify analytically, as well as to treat prescriptively, the women in my field work were nonetheless caring for it all the time. It may not have been a form in the sense of holding a stable materiality, but it was nonetheless vital and active. So returning to the teaching question which I began with, I hope that thinking about health as something collective and shared through social and material relations may help to shift the possible responses to the question, what is healthy eating? I wouldn't want my students to stop thinking about social and political contexts out of which the individual body emerges, but I would want them to recognize that the individual body and the health with which it is associated is itself contextually based. As seen in Guatemalan kitchens, health is not necessarily a diagnosable quality embedded within a body, more like the soups that the women with whom I were, lived were busy preparing than a personalized prescription. It was spread across many and helpings that were neither identical nor determinant. As health in these kitchens was not located in a body, neither was obesity. The anthropologist Hortense Powdermaker has a classic article on the anthropological approaches to the problem of obesity that turns public health attention to the social and political worlds out of which the problem of people who carry too much weight on their bodies emerges. Meanwhile, from the vantage of the kitchens where I worked, obesity was not primarily an illness defined by a person's excess weight. Indeed, there was not a singular problem manifesting itself in a singular body. In these kitchens, bodies and their contexts were not easily countable, but were always contingent, always shifting. Local biologies were necessarily connected with emergent ecologies, and this links up a bit to ideas of bioenergetics that your group has been undertaking here. So at stake in these conversations, when it comes to designing and assessing strategies for obesity care, is the need to not just attend to social, political, and historical contexts of the individual, what personalized diet will work best given your social background. This observation also asks that we attend to different and always shifting contexts in which different and always shifting forms of health come to matter.